Hello, and welcome to the Dark Ages podcast. This is episode 18, All or Nothing. Last time, we talked about the consequences of Rissimer's betrayal of Majorian and appointment of the puppet Libius Severus. Essentially, Rissimer had chosen to throw away all the good work Majorian had done stitching the Empire back together in return for personal power over Italy. On paper, Ravenna still could claim dominion over northern Gaul, Illyria, and Spain, but only Italy really remained. Southern Gaul had been divided up between the Burgundians and Visigoths, those same Visigoths were steadily extending their control over Spain. Illyria and northern Gaul were ruled by Romans, but both of those Romans had rejected Libius Severus and operated as semi-independent warlords. And of course, Gaiseric the Vandal still sat there in Africa. Now the elder statesman of the Roman world and his pirates made regular visits to the Italian coasts to remind them of his presence and his power. Real quick digression. Much is made of the decline of the city of Rome itself in importance in the later century of the empire, and while it's true that Milan had become the main administrative capital in the 4th century and Ravenna was used as a safe haven after the Visigoths invaded in the beginning of the 5th, Rome itself remained by far the most populated city in the west, and after 450 the emperors began to spend more time back there. The senate still met in Rome, and after all, three imperial princesses have now been captured by barbarians in Rome, either by Visigoths or by Vandals. So I'm going to use Ravenna and Rome interchangeably as metonymies for the Western Empire in general. End of fairly brief digression. When Majorian was emperor, Rissimer had been able to ignore the East's objections to his rule, because he could still draw on the resources of Gaul, Hispania, and Illyria, but... With the general rejection of Libius Severus, Rissimer's security position became much more difficult. All things considered, I can't imagine that Rissimer foresaw just how unpopular his choice of puppet was going to be. It's hard to imagine him choosing Severus if he had foreseen the intensity of the opposition. But with only the revenues of Italy available, it wasn't possible to maintain garrisons that were capable of deterring the Vandals though he kept up the appearance of unconcerned distance from Constantinople. As time went on, it became increasingly clear that the relationship would eventually need to be repaired. It also became clear, as time went on, that Libius Severus was an impediment to that repair. It's really quite frustrating that we know so little about Severus. The objections to his elevation are so consistent and sustained and out of proportion, it makes me wonder if there's more going on there than the sources tell us. Was there more to the Eastern Court's objections than just his lack of family connection to the throne? It's impossible for us to even guess, since we have so little to go on. Severus's own main interest seems to have been religion, and while that could get heated, there doesn't seem to be anything particularly innovative or controversial about his particular beliefs. If the objection was purely about dynastic legitimacy, then the Eastern Court didn't really have a moral authority to be so high and mighty about it. We've gotten away from talking very much about the Eastern Empire since the death of Attila, because there's been so much going on in the West, so I'll try to bring us up to date over there as quickly as possible. The last emperor we talked about in the East was Marcion, who had secured the throne, you may or may not remember, by marrying Theodosius II's sister, 
Pulcheria, and thereby inserting himself into the Theodosian dynasty. The Theodosians have been ruling both halves of the Empire for 70 years by then, and for all of their faults, and there were many, they had the legitimacy things sewn up. Just as in the West, though, a barbarian general worked in the background to do most of the heavy policy lifting. Aspar has popped up here and there a couple of times before. He was an Alan by descent, and by the time Marcion died in 457, he had been one of the great powers behind the throne for 25 years. In Constantinople, there were always multiple figures working to influence policy behind the scenes, so Aspar never achieved the kind of single dominance that had become the norm in the West. But his power grew steadily after Pulcheria died, and by the time Marcion followed her, Aspar was in a position to name the imperial successor. There weren't any Theodosian children or cousins available, so the slate was relatively clean. It is in fact possible that the Eastern Senate offered the throne to Aspar, or to his son Artibur, but he was too canny for that. He knew the people of the city wouldn't tolerate him as emperor. The next most obvious choice was an aristocrat named Anthemius. Married to Marcion's daughter, he had a long pedigree with multiple emperors contributing to the gene pool, had an impressive military record, and was wealthy and popular, and that made him absolutely unacceptable to Aspar. Anthemius would be too independent for the general's purposes. Aspar couldn't be emperor, but that didn't stop him from wanting to rule like an emperor, so Anthemius was out. Ultimately, Aspar picked a relatively low-ranking officer from his own army, named Leo the Thracian, and maneuvered him into the top spot. Leo was a good and smart officer, but had no power base of his own, which was perfect as far as Aspar was concerned. But Leo I would turn out to be even smarter than Aspar gave him credit for. It was Leo who officially objected to Libius Severus and refused to recognize him, so you can see where I'm coming from when I say the Eastern Court didn't have much moral authority behind the objection. Morally sound or not, opposition to Severus remained as a constant feature of East-West relations. As the Vandals battered the ports in the shipping of the West, Severus's value as Rissimer's puppet steadily declined. Libius Severus died in 467. He was probably in his late 40s or early 50s, and had ruled, but not really, the Roman Empire for four years. Rissimer did not mourn him. And while there's no real evidence that the general had Severus poisoned, I am not the first person to raise the possibility. So, it's time for a new emperor, right? Right, Rissimer? Well, there's no need to be hasty. These things take time. Decisions have to percolate, you know. And really, did there need to be an emperor in the West just to rule Italy? I mean, sure, we'll get the rest back eventually. But at the moment, it's not exactly a two-man job, is it? Why not just let Rissimer run it, like he's been doing for five years? Just give him the appropriate title. King Rissimer has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? But it wasn't time for that quite yet. The only way Rissimer was going to get the title of Rex was if Leo granted it, and Leo was absolutely not going to grant it, and Rissimer knew it. Even so, more than a year went by before any move was made to replace Libius Severus. Presumably that year was occupied with diplomatic back and forth. Leo, probably with Aspar's input, thought he had come up with the perfect man for the job, 
Anthemius. All the things that made Anthemius a potential rival in the East made him a perfect candidate in the West. Military experience, apparent personal charisma, and an imperial lineage. Those were also all reasons for Rissimer to hate the idea. And so the back and forth went on. Meanwhile, in Carthage, Gaiseric had his own ideas. He reasoned that the last legitimate emperor in the West had been Valentinian III, and while he hadn't had any sons, that didn't mean he didn't have any heirs. His two daughters were clearly the rightful inheritors of the Roman legacy, or at least their husbands were. Enter Olibrius, a Roman senator who was married to one of those daughters, Placidia. Gaiseric pushed hard for Olibrius to take the Western prize. Now, I am sure you are waving your arms at me, saying, Now hang on one gosh darn minute, Mr. History Man. Gaiseric is a barbarian king who frankly stole his kingdom from the Romans. Why does he get an opinion? And come to think of it, why does he care? Well, Mr. or Ms. History Listener person, I will deal with the second question first. Gaiseric was pushing for the husband of Valentinian's daughter, because Valentinian's other daughter, Eudocia, was married to Gaiseric's son. Remember that the Vandals had captured the two princesses and their mother during the sack of Rome in 455, and they had stayed in Carthage for seven years before Placidia and her mom were ransomed by Leo and returned to Constantinople. Eudocia, the other daughter, stayed behind with her husband Hunneric, prince of the Vandals. So Olibrius was effectively part of the Vandal King's family. Regardless of the merits of Gaiseric's argument, his motivations were purely self-serving. And as for the first question, why does he get an opinion? Well, that was because he had a big, scary navy. Which, as the British will tell you, gives you the right to have an opinion about all manner of things. Marcion and Aspar had made a separate peace with Gaiseric. But, to put pressure on the Emperor to favor his candidate in the West, Gaiseric broke that agreement, and sent raids against the Eastern territories, especially in Greece and Epirus. In some defense of Gaiseric, he probably didn't view that as breaking the treaty. Germanic leaders viewed treaties as contracts between individual rulers, not between states, so when Marcion died, the treaty was void. Leo would, of course, have no truck with that interpretation of international law, and he decided to kill multiple birds with one stone. He sent Anthemius to Italy, with an army at his back, purely as a demonstration, you understand, not an invasion, no, 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 don't get the wrong idea, Rissimer. And he sent him with two jobs. Secure the Western throne, with or without Rissimer's approval, and turf Gaiseric and his Aryan heretic vandals out of Africa once and for all. So, no pressure or anything. On his way, Anthemius picked up Marcellinus from Illyria. Remember, that was the other guy who had rebelled against Severus and was operating as a warlord. And with their combined armies, arrived in Italy to see what could be worked out. Anthemius wasn't actually interested in civil war, though. He knew it would be counterproductive to waste lives and treasure fighting other Romans when the real challenge was in Africa, and Rissimer really was in no position to deny him. So an agreement was eventually reached. Rissimer would keep his post as Magister Militum, and to smooth things over, he would marry Anthemius's daughter, Alopea. Sidonius Apollinaris, who seems to be everywhere, was in Rome at the time of the marriage, 
and he wrote a letter to a friend describing the city at the time. Quote, As yet I have not presented myself at the bustling gates of emperor or court official, for my arrival coincided with the marriage of the patrician Rissimer, to whom the hand of the emperor's daughter was being accorded in the hope of securer times for the state. Not individuals alone, but whole classes and parties are given up to rejoicing. While I was writing these lines, scarce a theater, market, praetorium, forum, temple, or gymnasium, but echoed to the passage of the cry, Thalassio! And even at this hour the schools are closed, no business is doing, the courts are voiceless, missions are postponed, there's a truce to intrigue, and all of the serious business of life seems merged into the buffooneries of the stage. Though the bride has been given away, though the bridegroom has put off his wreath, yet the noise of the great gathering has not died away in the palace chambers, because the bride still delays to start for her husband's house. When this merrymaking has run out its course, you shall hear what remains to tell of my proceedings. If indeed these crowded hours of idleness to which the whole state now seems surrendered are ever to end, even when the festivities are over. End quote. Thalassio, by the way, was a traditional exclamation that was part of Roman wedding custom. It predated the Christian period, and it's not really clear what it means. It may have been the name of an old god, but that's just speculation, really. Anyway, from Apollinaris's description, that line, the bride delays to start for her husband's house, we can maybe infer that Alopea was not terribly thrilled with the situation. We don't know for sure the ages of the people involved, but Rissimer was probably in his late 40s by 467, and Alopea presumably was significantly younger. Eh, so it often goes in these political marriages. Once things in Italy were settled, though, Anthemius and the rest immediately got onto the second half of the mission, the reconquest of Africa. Anthemius reorganized his and Marcellinus's armies, along with some western troops, and prepared ships for an invasion. But it didn't go at all well. Bad weather prevented the crossing, and the armies had to disband before anything at all could be accomplished. Undeterred, though, Anthemius, Marcellinus, and Leo put their heads together and organized another invasion to leave the next year. The West couldn't spare any troops, but contributed financially to the operation. Leo, meanwhile, according to Procopius, quote, collected a fleet of ships from across the whole of the eastern Mediterranean, showing great generosity to both soldiers and sailors, end quote. Procopius tells us there were a hundred thousand men mustered for this push, and more than a thousand ships, so we can be sure that there was nowhere near a hundred thousand men. But there may have been between thirty and fifty thousand, which is still a massive endeavor for the time. An army, though, is only as good as its commander. And for this very important mission, Leo chose his brother-in-law. And we all know what they're like. You can't... Sorry, Jeff. You can't really fault Leo, though. Basiliscus, that's the brother-in-law, was another military man with connections, and Leo was hoping to bring him up to counterbalance the power of Aspar. To that end, he also allied with and promoted the interests of the Isaurians, who were a semi-Romanized tribe of well, bandits, from the Anatolian highlands, and we will get back to them later. I was talking about Basiliscus. Focus. So Leo's idea to get himself some freedom of action by promoting Basiliscus was good in theory, but he didn't factor in his BIL's absolutely principle-free form of ambition. 
See, Basiliscus figured that if he wanted power for himself, and he absolutely wanted power for himself, it would be much easier to cozy up to the already powerful Aspar than to build influence up for himself. So Leo's plan backfired. Most relevantly for our current subject, many suspected that Aspar was secretly in the pocket of Geyseric. Maybe not a full-on traitor, but possibly on the payroll. And certainly a useful pro-Vandal voice in Constantinople. In addition to the thousand ships and many dozens of thousands of men, the Enterprise represented a vast expenditure on the part of the Empire. Like the manpower numbers, the sources vary about the financial cost of the operation, but all agree it was enormous. Procopius reports 130,000 pounds of gold, with Candidas giving 65,000 pounds of gold and 700,000 pounds of silver. Remember our very back-of-the-envelope calculations about the value of the tribute paid to Attila back in the day, and that was just 2,100 pounds of gold? This expedition really was risking it all on one turn of pitch and toss. The plan was thorough. It was assuredly not to engage the Vandals in direct naval confrontation. The Vandals had 30 years of experience at naval confrontation at this point. To soften things up, Marcellinus was sent to invade Sardinia and deny its ports to the Vandals. A second army, commanded by a fellow named Heraclius, left Constantinople and landed east of Carthage on the Libyan coast, with Basiliscus coming down from Sicily to meet Heraclius and presumably catch the Vandals between Hammer and Anvil. Now, before going any further, I need to pause and talk a little bit about the conditions that pertain to naval warfare in late antiquity, and really, through all human history up until the development of naval canon. Those of you who are big ancient military history buffs will no doubt have heard this a thousand times, so just zone out for a couple of minutes. The purpose-built warship of the time was called the Droman. It was a large galley, meaning it was primarily driven by oars, though most had sails as well, and unlike the trireme that probably comes to mind when you think of ancient warships, it was fully decked over and did not usually have the bronze ram below the water line at the prow. Instead, it had a large above-water spur that jutted out from the front of the ship. The goal was the same, though. Maneuver to outflank or surround the enemy, or get in behind them, and then ram them with that big spur. That would break oars and kill oarsmen, of course, and it would also tie the ships together, allowing you to leap across and engage the other side in hand-to-hand combat because ultimately the goal is to create a land battle on water, after accumulating as many advantages of position, and so on, that you possibly can. Naval battles had a reputation for being particularly fierce, because obviously running away is impossible. Fight or drown. Most of the thousand ships that were supposedly gathered for the attack on Africa, though, were not these ferocious war galleys. The vast majority were commandeered merchant shipping, converted to use as troop transports. We don't know, because none of our sources tell us, how, or even if, these ships were modified for the occasion, but it doesn't seem too far-fetched to imagine that at least some of them may have been fitted with platforms for archers and things like that. If these vessels found themselves engaged, their goal remained the same. Get in close, board, rather than be boarded. Obviously, the more coordinated and well-organized the fleet was, 
the better chance they had of turning conditions in their favor. Yeah, that was foreshadowing. Heraclius encountered no real problems. He captured Tripoli quickly and then moved west along the coast, taking towns as he went. Meanwhile, Basiliscus sailed down and gathered his fleet at a rendezvous point at a spot east of Carthage, on the northwest side of what's now called Cape Bon, or the Ras al-Tayyib. It's the little finger that points out from Tunisia towards Sicily. The Romans called it the Promontorium Mercurium, the Cape of Mercury. Once he was in position, Basiliscus waited. What he was waiting for isn't exactly clear. He should probably have started landing troops, or moving to blockade Carthage, or something. He was probably intending to head for Utica, just down the coast from Carthage, which had a harbor that, unlike Carthage, was not protected by a chain. But he didn't make any move. Gaiseric was understandably worried about this situation, what with towns falling to Heraclius one after another, and now this massive force sitting just across the bay from his capital, so off dashed a messenger to Basiliscus. And here I will again turn over the narrative to Procopius. Quote, Gaiseric, profiting from the negligence of Basiliscus, did as follows. Arming all the subjects in the best way he could, he filled his ships, but not all. For some he kept empty in readiness, for they were the ships that sailed the most swiftly. Sending envoys to Basiliscus, he begged him to defer the war for a space of five days, in order that in the meantime he might take counsel and do the things that were especially desired by the emperor. They say, too, that he sent a great amount of gold without the knowledge of the army to Basiliscus, and thus purchased this armistice. And he did this thinking that a favorable wind would rise for him during this time, and Basiliscus, either as doing a favor for Aspar in accordance to what he had promised, or selling the moment of opportunity for money, or perhaps thinking it was the better course, did as he was requested, and remained quietly in his camp, awaiting the moment favorable to the enemy. End quote. Now, I am not myself a military man, but I believe that is called losing the initiative that might be in Dungeons and Dragons, but either way, it is not what you're supposed to do. I have to note that while Procopius is clearly of the opinion that Aspar was a Vandal stooge, he does allow for the possibility that Basiliscus was greedy, or just incompetent, rather than a traitor. Basiliscus has been described in many ways, with the modern assessment ranging from Peter Heather, who argues he was just unimaginative and unlucky, and that he was the victim of the tendency of Roman writers to write off every defeat as the result of treachery, to the assessment of Mike Duncan, who characterized him as a jackass. Whether the five-day truce story is true is debatable. Also debatable. But the end result's not. Normally, the wind at that time of year blows from the east, away from the peninsula. That gave the Romans the advantage, as they would have the weather gauge in any engagement. But then one day, the wind changed, just as Gaiseric hoped it would, and began blowing from the west, pushing the Roman ships towards shore. Gaiseric had his ships ready, and leapt into action. The Vandal ships appeared on the horizon, and the Roman sailors, with the winds in their faces, could see that, yep, some of them were on fire, and heading right at them. Procopius again. 
The Vandals raised their sails, and taking in tow the boats they had made ready with no men in them, sailed against the enemy. And when they came near, they set the boats on fire, which they had been towing, when their sails were bellied by the wind, and let them go against the Roman fleet. And since there were a great number of ships there, these boats easily spread fire wherever they struck, and were themselves readily destroyed together with those with which they came in contact. As the fire advanced, the Roman navy was filled with tumult, as was natural, with a great din that rivaled the noise of the wind and the rising flames. End quote. Nowhere to run, flaming death bearing down on them, the sailors scrambled desperately to push or drag the burning hulks away from their own vessels. Tightly packed as they were, the fire spread throughout the fleet. Ships behind the front line had no choice but to row or tow themselves out of the way of the wind-driven flames. And behind the flames came the Vandals, hardened by thirty years of seaborne raiding, who caught many of the fleeing ships and captured or sank them, taking the men as prisoners to be sold as slaves, and taking their arms for themselves. Procopius highlights one man's bravery, one of Basiliscus's lieutenants, named Joannes, who fought desperately as he was surrounded by the enemy, killing many of them. He was approached by one of Geyseric's sons, saying he would be spared if he surrendered. But Joannes spat back that he would never fall into the hands of dogs, and leapt overboard, drowning in his armor. Procopius gives us no idea whatever of how many men or ships were lost in the battle of Cape Bon. It was, without doubt, a disaster. As much as a third of the force may have been lost, and even if it was less than that, the lost cohesion in the fleet meant that the operation was at an end. The ships that did survive limped home. Heraclius, hearing of the disaster and knowing he couldn't complete the mission on his own, broke off his campaign and also returned to Constantinople. Meanwhile, in Sardinia, Marcellinus was betrayed by one of his officers and murdered. As for Basiliscus, the commander didn't go down with his ships. Like many a commander, he slipped away to fight another day. Or, in this case, he slipped away to hide in the church of St. Sophia in Constantinople until the mob that was baying for his blood could be dispersed. We haven't heard the last of him, though, so don't consign his memory to the dustbin just yet. The disaster in Africa was, to my mind, the last nail in the coffin. The fall of the West was inevitable from here on. The mission had cost so much that when Leo died four years later, the treasury was still empty. The East would not be able to help the West again, and the resources of Africa would remain in Vandal hands for another hundred years. Next time, I'll continue this cheerful narrative of relentless crumble, as personal rivalries continue to overshadow the needs of the Empire, and as the Visigoths make their move to expand control and create the largest of the post-Roman kingdoms. We're just two or three episodes away from the last of the emperors in the West, when we can take a breath and figure out where we go from there. I need to give a shout-out to the person who left a review on Apple Podcasts, though I am sorry, but your username is too many letters and numbers to even attempt a pronunciation. I had been struggling with motivation a bit with this thing, to be honest, and seeing that helped kick me in the rear and get me going, so thank you. Apple just released the details of how their search works, and while it confirmed that search results do not take ratings or reviews into account, that doesn't mean they aren't still important to me, and to the people deciding whether or not to listen, so 
please continue to leave them. Thank you also to those of you who have left ratings on Spotify, with a special thanks to those of you who have given four out of five stars. I'm serious, that really helped too by banishing at least some of the imposter syndrome that I sometimes labor under. But, you know, five stars from here on out, okay? As always, please tell a friend if you are enjoying the podcasts, or join me on the Dark Ages Podcast Facebook page, or on Twitter or Instagram, both at Dark Ages Pod. I try not to spend too much time on socials generally, especially this week, but I will retweet interesting tidbits of history and archaeology that come my way, and I post relevant pictures on Instagram. You can also find stuff like that, in addition to maps and sources, including one for this episode, on the website, www.darkagespod.com. Thank you all, as ever, for listening. Until next time, take care. Thank you.